Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this time to dive into your word, and we lay this time at your feet. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would unfold and unravel the layers of Scripture, and allow our hearts to burn for you and for whatever message you have in store. We thank you, Lord, for this upcoming Sunday, the solemnity of the most holy body and blood of Jesus. Corpus Christi, that we thank you for the gift of the Eucharist, the gift of your body and your blood, so that we could always be nourished, always be close to you, always be invited into intimate relationship with you every time we go to Mass. We thank you, Lord, for that sacrifice that we represent and remember every time we gather for worship. Help it not to be lost on us or to be a meaningless ritual, but to see it as life-giving bread spiritual food that we need for our journey. And so as we dive into the word, allow that reality, that truth of all you offer us to sink in and to challenge us to see you in deeper ways, in new ways, and to live differently, live more boldly in our faith, live as the saints you've called us to be. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. Thank you for joining us in this fashion. We cannot be together this week because I'm out of town for a ministry conference. And as much as I would love to be in person with you, um, I love going to this conference. And so please pray for me while I'm there and pray for all those who will be there. It'll be, you know, six to seven hundred uh, Catholic ministers, priests uh, there just learning how to do great ministry to uh, specifically to young people and their families, but just a really great time uh, in Arizona. And so I just pray uh, ask that you pray for safety and fruitfulness and all of that for all of us. Um, this upcoming Sunday is the feast, the solemnity of the most holy body and blood of Jesus, also known as the Feast of Corpus Christi. It's always the second Sunday after Pentecost. It always goes Pentecost Sunday, Holy Trinity, Corpus Christi, and then we get into ordinary time. And this Sunday, we're specifically celebrating and remembering the fact that Jesus instituted the Eucharist and all of that, all that that means for us as a sacramental church, as a people of sacramental faith. And we're also returning to the Gospel of Luke. Throughout the Easter season, we've been in John, and now we're returning to Luke, and we'll be in the Gospel of Luke all the way for the rest of the liturgical year until Advent. And so we have a lot more exploring to do in this Gospel as we go into the season of ordinary time to really understand how do we live out this faith in ordinary life. We've journeyed through kind of the life uh, major life moments of Jesus from Advent to Easter. And now in this ordinary time, it's anything but ordinary, we're recognizing how God can work in extraordinary ways in the ordinary routine parts of our life. And so we go back through the areas of the gospel that we have not yet read this liturgical year, uh, the gospel of Luke, and we're reminded of different teachings of Jesus, different miracles, different events in his ministry, so that it can inspire us to follow him more faithfully. 
And so as we have Bible study this week, uh, we are returning to a story that you've probably heard many, many, many times, and that is the feeding of the 5,000. This is the one of the only stories and miracles that appears in all four Gospels, uh, probably because it was hugely significant to them. Um, and so any way that maybe you've heard this presented in a way that's devoid of the miraculous or the supernatural, it's pretty evident that this was very miraculous and supernatural. Otherwise, all four of the Gospel writers wouldn't have bothered to include it. This takes place in the Gospel of Luke, right after Jesus sends the twelve out on mission. He gives them uh, authority and power in the very beginning of, of chapter 9 of Luke. And then he sends them out and they return. And this happens when they return. Okay, so we're in Luke chapter 9. And the gospel is going to start partway through verse 11. Okay, so Luke chapter 9, partway through verse 11, all the way through 17. First time through, get a picture for what's being said here. You've heard this story a thousand times before. Try and delete every other image you have of this and paint it anew in your mind. They are, this is taking place in Bethsaida. This is a, a town that is on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee by the sea. Uh, they're in a deserted place. There are many multitudes of people there, 5,000 men, so probably close to 10, maybe even 15,000 people. Um, a big scene, a lot of teaching happening, um, and you can see in your own mind what this looks like as we read. First time through Luke chapter 9, partway through verse 11. Jesus received the crowds and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed to be cured. As the day was drawing to a close, the twelve approached him and said, Dismiss the crowd so that they can go to the surrounding villages and farms and find lodging and provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. Jesus said to them, Give them some food yourselves. They replied, Five loaves and two fish are all we have, unless we ourselves go and buy food for all these people. Now the men there numbered about 5,000. Then he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50. They did so and made them all sit down. Then taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he said the blessing over them, broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. They all ate and were satisfied, and when the leftover fragments were picked up, they filled twelve wicker baskets. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So again, you've heard that before, but you may have heard little details that are different because, again, this appears in some form in all four of the Gospels, and some little details are different. Uh, so we're going to read this a second time now, and as you do, Try not to listen now for the meaning of the passage, but listen for the voice of the Lord speaking, for the Holy Spirit inspiring something by standing or resonating a word, of a word or phrase out for you. So whatever that is, as we read through, listen for any particular word or phrase that strikes you, that means something to you, that sparks a memory or a thought, whatever it might be. Hold on to that, reflect on it, ask the questions why is this standing out? What is the Lord trying to say to me? Why is this significant? What is God trying to get me to do or believe because of this? Again, Luke 9, partway through verse 11. Jesus received the crowds and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed to be cured. As the day was drawing to a close, the twelve approached him and said, Dismiss the crowd so that they can go to the surrounding villages and farms 
and find lodging and provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. Jesus said to them, Give them some food yourselves. They replied, Five loaves and two fish are all we have, unless we ourselves go and buy food for all these people. Now the men there numbered about five thousand. Then he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty. They did so and made them all sit down. Then taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he said the blessing over them, broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. They all ate and were satisfied. And when the leftover fragments were picked up, they filled twelve wicker baskets. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to take a moment to reflect on those things that stood out to you. And if you would, if you're watching this live, please share them in the live chat so that you can see what stood out for, uh, for one another or in the comments. Uh, please, I invite you to do that. And especially if you have questions, please write them in the comments so we can answer them because we can't do that live at the moment. If you're watching this later, um, you feel free to pause this and maybe discuss with the people around you what stood out to you and why it did. But if you're watching this live, just take a moment to reflect on those things, what your questions might be, post them in the chat or in the comments for a moment, and then we'll go through the rest of the study. And then if you're watching this with other people, you can then carry on your discussion at that point. So take a few moments to do whatever it is that you want to do in this moment. Well, we have here a wonderful gospel story for this upcoming Sunday. Uh, as I said, very significant because it appears in all four gospels. Very rarely do things appear in all, all four gospels. Not because they're not important, but because of the way the gospels were written. Remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written about what Jesus did. And Mark wrote first, um, you know, probably sometime around 67 or right before the fall of, of uh, Jerusalem in 70, somewhere in there. And then shortly thereafter, within five or 10 years, Matthew and Luke also wrote. And they used Mark and also another common source that we don't know, but they copied things into their gospel and they elaborated them for specific audiences. Luke elaborated more for the Gentiles. Matthew elaborated more for the Jewish community. Now, those existed, and it wasn't for another 30 years or so that John was written. And John wrote, not to say what Jesus did, people knew that now, but he, he wrote to say who Jesus was and to dispute some of the different heresies or false beliefs about Jesus that were out there and to really show how these stories, these uh, events in the, in the life of Jesus, really clearly show that he was the Son of God. So, 
The Gospel of Luke was written by Luke, who was a traveling companion of St. Paul. He was a physician. He was not one of the twelve apostles. He did not witness these things with his own eyes. He had a conversion and heard these things from St. Paul and other, um, other people, especially some of the apostles. And he recounts in the very first verses of the Gospel of Luke that he investigated everything accurately anew. So he went to find eyewitness testimony from the people who saw this and to put it in a orderly sequence. So to present it as chronologically as he could, but also to show that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And so some things are a little bit out of sequence to kind of show symbolically why these things are significant. But we believe for our purposes that this section is relatively in sequence. So in the Gospel of Luke, in this chapter, chapter 9, Jesus, at the very beginning, he gives the apostles power and authority to go out. And he sends them out to um, have authority over all demons, to cure diseases, and sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Tells them to take nothing for the journey. Don't take food, don't take money, don't take a walking stick, don't take anything extra. Rely on the hospitality of other people. Okay, so that's important. We have this little um, uh, interesting section about Herod's opinion of Jesus, which is significant because Herod and all these other people are asking, who is Jesus? Right after the feeding of the 5,000, we have Peter's confession about who Jesus is. So it's kind of a pairing there. And there's a pairing in the beginning of this story, our gospel, with the 12 being sent out because now they return. Okay, so it doesn't seem like a lot of time has passed. It's only been, gosh, three whole verses until they, they left. So we don't know what kind of span of time they were gone for. Okay, this could have been a week, a few days, could have been months, who knows. Um, but they return. And in verse 10, it says, when they returned, they explained to Jesus everything that they had done. And he took them and withdrew in, to a private, uh, in private to a town called Bethsaida. So as I said, Bethsaida is on the northern sh shore of the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida means house of fishermen or house of hunters. And so it's the um, hometown of Peter, Andrew, and Philip, uh, according to the Gospel of John. And so um, it makes sense that it's the house of fishermen. That's where they were as fishermen uh, making their living, but also the house of hunters and kind of pointing back to in the Gospels where Jesus says, now I will make you fishers of men, that they're out kind of hunting for souls, kind of along the lines of that famous poem uh, uh, by, by Thompson, where God is characterized as a hound of heaven, constantly pursuing us and coming after us. And that mission is the same mission of the apostles, to go out and win souls for the Lord. And they do that, their mission is to do that through hospitality, relying on the hospitality of others, and extending hospitality, recognizing they what, what they receive, they are meant to give back, to evangelize, and to heal. That's essentially what they are being called to do. And so, the crowds, they find out that they're in this deserted place, and they come and they find them. And this is where we begin this gospel passage. It says, Jesus received them. Okay, pay attention. Hospitality. Again, this is something that the apostles were just called to exercise and receive themselves. Jesus leads by example, and he receives the crowds. Then he spoke to them. He declares to them different teachings, just as the apostles were just sent to do, to preach the kingdom of God, which it says here, spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And he healed those who needed to be cured. Okay, these are the exact things the apostles were just doing. Okay, they're part of this mission now. They should understand what Jesus is doing. Even though they're tired, they need rest. They have no provisions on them. You know, they have no food. They've been relying on the hospitality of others. Now in their, they're in this deserted wasteland. Um, they should be kind of aware of the fact that this is still part of the mission. Just because they're back with Jesus doesn't mean that this mission ends. Jesus speaks to them about the kingdom of God. 
This phrase here, the kingdom of God, uh, is often can be better translated to the reign of God. And so when we think about the kingdom of God, sometimes we think about something like that happens after we die or that's in the distant future when Jesus comes back. But Jesus is very clear in the Gospels. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he says that eternal life is to know God, to know God through the person of Jesus Christ. And so those things that are, we have this saying in the church that it's here, but also not yet. Here, but not yet. That we can experience the kingdom of God here, the reign of God in our lives. We can give him control, give him dominion over our life and see his dominion in this world, praise it, see that it is good. But we also recognize part of that has not happened yet because there's still sin, there's still brokenness. We're still living this earthly life. God hasn't come to completely restore all of humanity and the earth by building a new heaven and a new earth as it's written at the end of Revelation. That has yet to happen. And so, uh, but this is why he's preaching about the kingdom of God, because part of it is at hand. It's for people to realize you can have this gift of eternal life now. You can know God in the person of Jesus Christ here in the flesh now. He's not distant. He's not far away. He's right here. Verse 12, as the day was drawing to a close, the 12 approached him and said, dismiss the crowd. So the 12, they're looking out, they're seeing thousands of people, they're hungry, they're tired, there's no provisions, they're recognizing this could be a problem. And I think the important thing here, the distinction here, is that where we see problems, Jesus sees possibilities. Where we see problems, Jesus sees possibilities. I saw this phrase, I came across it, and I can't stop thinking about it, um, but it said, impossible is where God starts. Impossible is where God starts. And so we often see a problem. The apostles look around at this and like, this is impossible. We can't feed 10,000 people. But impossible is where God starts. But they, trying to be good lieutenants, kind of trying to be good leaders, uh, given the authority and the power that God has given them to suggest, maybe we should bring this to a close. They can't see anything beyond what, what is in front of them. They're focusing not on what they have, the small provisions they have of five loaves and two fish. They're focusing instead of what they don't have. That's a good lesson for you and I. Like, how joyful are you when you're focusing on everything you don't have? Not very joyful. We're always wanting for more, desiring more, longing for more, having that sense of wanting that instant gratification. And then the second we have that thing, we want more and more and more of it, whatever it might be. Money, food, experiences, travel, relationships, you, you name it. But what Jesus does is he focuses on what they have. Not a problem, but a possibility. And even though it seems like an insurmountable problem, and what they have being infinitely small in comparison, that's where Jesus draws his attention. And that, I think, is a great lesson for you and I. That in your life, how are you offering the small gift of your time, the small gift of what you have to offer to God, instead of focusing on everything that you're not or everything that you don't have, Focus on who you are and who God created you to be because God, when you offer that to him, he can create supernatural spiritual abundance in your life and the lives of those around you, who you affect. That's just a reality. And the same thing is true when we look at the Eucharist. We look at the Eucharist at Mass and we see simple bread and simple wine. We don't see anything fancy. You know, it's not filet mignon and Dom Perignon. It's, it's very simple ingredients. God comes in the form of bread and wine, to us in the Eucharist, and that becomes his body and his blood. It's not a symbol. It's not a representation. It is substantially changed into his body and his blood for us. 
Because in those small gifts, those small offerings, that's why we offer, we walk up the gifts of bread and wine as a symbol of all of our collective offering of whatever we have. God can take that little amount and transform it into something supernaturally abundant. That's why this feast, this solemnity, this coming Sunday is so important. Because we need that in every aspect of our life. But the church teaches that the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. This is where everything flows from. This is the high point of our prayer as Catholics. We are a Eucharistic people. We are a Eucharistic people. And if we don't live like that, if we don't live with the expectation of spiritual abundance, then we're going to be devoid of the joy that God has promised us. He says in John 10.10, I came that you would have life and that you would have it with abundance. Not that you would focus on your problems, not that you would focus on everything you don't have, but you would see what little that you have See it as a gift from God, give it back, give it away to others, and see how God multiplies that in a cycle of spiritual abundance. So, that's their limited view and our limited view often and understanding of what is possible in a moment. Dismiss the crowd so that they can go to the surrounding villages and farms and find lodging and provisions. Now, this isn't very a practical suggestion because can you imagine 10,000 plus people inundating just a bunch of local towns and villages like... They're good. A lot of people are going to go hungry, but they're just trying to think of a solution here. And he says, they say, for we are in a deserted place. Now, this word deserted in, uh, in Greek is erimo, and it's the, the word for the wilderness in the Old Testament, you know, where the Hebrew people were wandering for 40 years. And this should hearken back to any Jewish listener to the 40 years that they were wandering in the desert, and Moses through the intercession of Moses, God provided bread from heaven, the manna in the desert, to feed them for 40 years. That was what sustained them. That's what kept them going. And so they're in a similar place here. The wilderness may seem to us very desolate and scary with no life, but for the Jewish people in their history, they're always being encouraged to remember what God has done. And seeing the wilderness as this place of, of identity where God chooses them, this place of transformation, this place of God providing in supernatural ways— and so the desert is not necessarily a scary or dangerous place as we might think of it. You know, when Jesus goes out to be tempted in the desert by the devil, he fasts and prays for 40 days before that temptation happens. He's going for basically a spiritual workout and rejuvenation. The desert is the place to be strengthened to him and to the Jewish people. Even though there is trial and difficulty and suffering, yes, that is where God can meet them. That is where God has meet, met them in the, their whole history. And so that is where they are now. They're out in the desert or in the wilderness, not much around. Verse 13, Jesus says to them, give them some food yourselves. Emphasis here in the Greek is you. You give them some food. A, a invitation to act. And I think what Jesus is trying to do here is to recognize like this mission that you were on before, like you, you've seen the power that you have that I've given you. You can do something. You can multiply. You can do this if you believe or you think of, the, of the, the possibilities of the impossible, the seemingly impossible happening. And so he tries to put it on them. And this is a great, another great phrase for us to remember. You know, when we see needs in the world, that we are the ones that Jesus is inviting, go, do it yourself. Go give them food yourselves. You know, I've, I hear a lot of people complain about people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk for having all of this money. And, you know, it, their money could fix so many of the world's problems. And first of all, these people also give a massive amount to charity. 
you know, and we might look at the, their proportion of their income to what they give. But like, even if they give like a million dollars or half a million dollars, like I've never given that much to charity. That's like a supernaturally generous amount. And yeah, it might not mean that much to them, but percentage wise, even do I give that percent corresponding to my income at all? You know, like focusing on what we can do. And the problem I think with that mentality is like, well, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or this or that person who has a lot of money, they should just throw money at this problem and everything will be okay. And the issue with that is that is never how the church looked at these problems. You see in the early church in Acts chapter 2, everyone brings what they have and lays it at the feet of the apostles and they distribute it to each according to their need. Everyone. It's not about go find the rich tax collectors and the Pharisees, convert them and take all their money and then we'll have what we need. It's like, no, even if you're poor, rich, whatever your gifts are, you bring them to the table to benefit others. And so when we find ourselves looking outward, looking left and right at our neighbor and saying, well, why aren't you doing that much? Or why aren't you doing that much? We need to be reminded by this reading to take a second and turn that gaze inward and say, well, what am I doing? What am I giving? What more can I give? Because every time we do, we see in scripture, generosity begets generosity. Anytime that we give from what we've been given, God supernaturally multiplies it back to us and to others. And so that is our focus. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to call you and I to. And he's trying to get the apostles to see like they have the ability to make a difference here, even if they don't think they have much, because this is how they respond. They replied, five loaves and two fish are all we have, unless we ourselves go and buy food for all these people. Five loaves and two fish. Again, simple ingredients, bread and fish. Okay. Five loaves and two fish, maybe enough for a small family. Um, you know, bread is something that uh, was very common at this time. A lot of analogies about bread, obviously very Eucharistic in its symbolism. The number five is often used to symbolize the five books of the Torah, um, which is the sacred law book of the Hebrew people, the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So kind of pointing back to the Old Covenant, kind of trying to remind them of people in the Old Covenant, like Moses. Um, and the two fish... Um, Fish in the early church was a symbol for Jesus. It was kind of like the secret code for Christians. Because remember, Christianity was being heavily persecuted. And so for two people to approach each other to determine, are we both Christians? Uh, one would initiate by kind of drawing with their foot a half circle on the ground in the sand. And if the other person completed that and created a fish, you know, meaning starting at the nose and ending at the tail, that was kind of a sign like, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. And the Greek word for fish, ichthys, um, the the uh, consonants of that in Latin ended up being an acronym for Jesus, kind of a code for Jesus. So I C or it'd be J C in the Latinization. J C T H S um, stood for Jesus Christ or Jesus Christos. Uh, T H is um, Theos Huios, which is God's Son or Son of God, and Soter, which means Savior. So fi a fish became a symbol for Jesus, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And so you'll sometimes see those bumper stickers or the paschal fish, as it's often described, uh, used as a symbol for Jesus. That's where it comes from. It's from the early church. And so these symbols really took off and really had a lot of meaning after this event, and some of them had meaning even before. This uh, points back especially to a particular story in 2 Kings. Now, if I were to ask you who ever in the Bible has multiplied loaves before, um, you might think of Moses and the manna from heaven, but he didn't really do that. That was him interceding and God raining down manna from heaven. But there is a very short, small story, just three verses, in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 4, of the prophet Elisha. 
Elisha it follows the prophet Elijah. Uh, Jesus is often compared to Elijah or is seen as a, a, you know, a new version of the prophet Elijah. But when Elijah is taken up into heaven, Elisha asks him for a double portion of his spirit. And there's this kind of outpouring of power, authority onto Elisha, and he carries on that prophetic mission of Elijah. And so there's this uh, scene with barley loaves in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42 is where it starts. And it says that a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God, that's Elisha, 20 barley loaves made from the first fruits and fresh grain in the ear. Okay, so Baal Shalisha is a city that means... Um, it means like Lord, Baal is Lord, kind of a pagan uh, god. Baal is a pagan god, so Lord or Master. And Shalisha means of three things, or it's three things, third husband, or governs the three. In essence, this city is kind of named for almost like an anti-trinity. There's a, a, a false god of three that this city's named for. And a man comes from that false god of three, and instead of praising God, praising the false god in that place, he comes to Elisha with the first fruits. That was something that was meant to be offered to God uh, in the Feast of Pentecost. You would offer your free will offering of the first fruits of your harvest during the Feast of Pentecost. And so this person does this by bringing this to the prophet Elisha. And Elisha says, give it to the people to eat. But his servant objected, how can I set this before a hundred? Okay, so we have, it was supernatural enough at the time to include in the Bible, but 20 barley loaves feeding 100 people, yeah, they'd each get like a decent slice or chunk. Um, they maybe, they wouldn't be filled, um, but you could see how they got there. But something about this was supernaturally abundant enough to include in Scripture. Now imagine how magnificent it was in comparison to what Jesus did. But this is kind of what Jesus is pointing back to, what he's embodying and how this is a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do. So Elisha again says, give it to the people to eat. For thus says the Lord, you will eat and have some left over. This prophecy, as all prophecies in the Old Testament, is immediately fulfilled in that moment, but it also is a foreshadowing of what the Messiah will do. And we see that in our gospel passage this week. So he said it before them, and when they had eaten, they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. So that points, again, to the feeding of the 5,000. There's also a feeding of the 4,000 in Mark that's distinctly separate from the feeding of the 5,000. So we have multiple times where Jesus performs miracles like this. There's also multiple times in the Old Testament where God is seen as someone who will provide for the hunger of his people. Uh, in Psalm 78, verse 19, they spoke against God. This is talking about the Hebrew people in the wilderness grumbling against Moses. They spoke against God and said, can God spread a table in the wilderness? They doubt what God can do, and yet he gave them manna from heaven. And we have other places in the Psalms and in the, the prophet Isaiah where the Messiah or God is seen as a, a being, a God who is going to satisfy our hunger. And that's so important to point out because here in the Gospel of Luke, that theme has been set forth from the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, when Mary when the Annunciation happens and the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have the Savior of the Lord, you're going to give birth to the Son of God, she has her famous prayer, the Canticle of Mary, also called the Magnificat. And in that prayer, she's praising God of how he has done great things for her. The Mighty One has done great things for me and holy is his name. And she says this in verse 53, the hungry he has filled with good things. So right from the beginning, from the moment of 
the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary. She is praising God and recognizing that he fills the hungry with good things. We have in Luke chapter 5, at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, miraculously multiplies the catch of fish when he calls the first disciples. And then we have in Luke chapter 6, when he gives the version of the Beatitudes in Luke 6, he says in Luke 6, 21, blessed are you who are now hungry for you will be satisfied. And I wonder how many of the people who had been coming after Jesus, chasing after him, following him from place to place, how many of them heard that promise and then were here to see it fulfilled and how amazing that would have been to behold. So Jesus here is setting the stage for how he's going to fulfill all of these promises to satisfy hunger in the Old Testament, how he's embodying a more abundant, a more powerful version of Moses, of Elisha, of these prophets and lawgivers in the Old Testament, and satisfying that hunger that we all have. Now, of course, this doesn't just speak to spiritual or physical hunger, it speaks to spiritual hunger. We all have a longing for what Plato, the philosopher, called the five transcendentals, love, belonging, truth, goodness, and beauty. We all want those things. We all hunger for them. And the issue is they can only find their fulfillment in the Lord. And yet so many of us look for them in worldly and earthly ways. We look for them in relationships and people and food, experiences, jobs, followers, friends, popularity, whatever it might be. And yet we still long for them. It doesn't matter what your resume says, how many zeros are on your paycheck, you're still going to have that longing and that spiritual hunger until it rests in the Lord, until we are satisfied in him. So all of that is what Jesus is pointing to here when he's talking about these simple ingredients, five loaves and two fish, how they point back to what he's already done, what's happened in the Old Testament, and the apostles not seeing yet that possibility of what's going to happen. So they say, unless we go and buy food for all of these people. In fact, in the Gospels of Mark and John, I think Philip is the one who says, there, um, it would, even if we had 200 denarii, it wouldn't be enough. 200 denarii's worth of bread, it wouldn't be enough. And a denarii was a day's wage. So 200 days wages, maybe in modern average income, is about thirty dollars to $40,000. So imagine going off and buying thirty dollars to $40,000 of bread. Even that wouldn't feed the multitude of crowds that are here before Jesus. So, verse 14. Now, the men there numbered about 5,000. So it's telling you why they're saying this, why we don't have enough food, because there's so many people there. There's this huge abundance of need. Now, why are only men counted? Well, this was typical in just Jewish gatherings because there was this thing um, in Jewish praise that you had to have, in order for Jewish praise to happen, Jewish worship to happen in a gathering, you needed what was called a minyan, which is a count of 10 Jewish men, at least. And it was just part of the tradition that you couldn't gather for Jewish, for Jewish praise, Jewish worship, unless you had that many people. And so it was just customary in that culture to count men. And it is a patriarchal society, and so it's, it's not surprising that that happens. However, it does indicate there are far more than 5,000 people here. Then Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. Now, these groups have been standing. That was the common posture of those who have been, been learning. The teacher would sit the students would stand. And so Jesus has been teaching them, declaring to them the kingdom of God, healing people. They're standing at attention to that. Now they can finally sit and rest and receive whatever uh, they're about to be given. Have them sit down in groups of 50. No significance to that. It's just a good administrative thing. Jesus is trying to, you know, separate them so they're easier to feed. And so they sit down in verse 16, then taking the five loaves and the two fish, 
Looking up to heaven, he said the blessing over them, broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Does that phrase, do those words sound familiar? It's the same verbs that are used in the Last Supper. Take, bless, broke, give. Taken, blessed, broken, and given. It's also, they're also used in the story of, uh, of Emmaus when Jesus breaks bread and he is revealed after he's resurrected in Luke 24. And so this imagery is setting up later the same words we're going to hear at the Last Supper in Luke 22, at Emmaus in Luke 24. Same language is going to be used in the Acts of the Apostles in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 27, when they gather for the breaking of the bread. And so very clear Eucharistic imagery and foreshadowing here uh, to show in a very physical way, here's how physically abundant Jesus can make bread. Now imagine how spiritually abundant he can make the spiritual food he is preparing when he institutes the Eucharist. Verse 17, they all ate and were satisfied. I cannot stand interpretations of this story where people say, it's so nice that they all just shared. No, like that's not. 10,000 people sharing five loaves, like you couldn't all like lick it. Like it's, there's not enough. There's not. The word they're satisfied, it means filled. Like they ate their fill, ate what they wanted. And no, they weren't just like, I'm going to be generous. I only want a little bit. Oh, oh, I'll pass, sell fast. No, like they were hungry in a deserted place. The apostles had no provisions. They'd just been traveling, relying on the hospitality of others. They alone would have needed five loaves and two fish because of all the traveling they'd been doing, how tired they were, how few provisions they had. They, they saw it as probably not even enough for themselves. And yet, everyone is satisfied. Everyone is satisfied. Take a, a moment and go back to what I was talking about before, about offering that very little that we have. Things that we, we may, may be a source for us to think about what we don't have, or we may see as a problem, like, this is all I have, God. You know, can you even use this? I don't have enough time. You know, I, I don't, I'm so busy. I can't pray. I don't have enough money. I can't give back to the church. You know, to really look at that and say, even the little that you have, God can multiply with spiritual fruit. At a previous parish where I was, um, I remember week after week, uh, the people who counted money, there would often be a tear shed because every week this person would mail in their collection envelope with just 75 cents in it, week after week without fail, three quarters, because that's what they could give. And it was just so beautiful to see the faithfulness of that gift and to see that even in poverty, even though this person likely did not have much to give, they were still offering what they could, and how beautiful that was. So the same invitation is for you and me. How can I offer what I've been given? Even if I see it as small or insignificant, God does not, and he can do miraculous things with it. When the leftover fragments were picked up, they filled 12 wicker baskets. Twelve is obviously very significant for the twelve tribes of Israel. There's this kind of imagery of the fact that Jesus is, through his spiritual abundance, through his miraculous power as the Son of God, as God himself, he is going to be the Messiah who reunifies the twelve tribes of Israel, reestablishes Israel as the chosen people of God, and brings to fulfillment all of the promises God made about their redemption. So that significance of that twelve number. But also, the fact that they're able to pick up leftover fragments. Remember, Back in Exodus and in Numbers, when Moses is instructed about the bread from heaven, he says, let everyone go and gather only what they need for that day. Only what they need for that day. They cannot keep leftovers. And on Saturday, or the, not Saturday, the day before the Sabbath, 
they can gather twice as much because they cannot gather on the Sabbath. And I will provide twice as much that day of the week. And no bread will come the next day. And if the people disobeyed this, the manna would rot and it would not become edible. And God would become angry and there'd be some kind of consequence for that. And so this is the instruction that Moses has given. He can't keep leftovers. The people can't. And yet Jesus being more supernaturally abundant, having more power and ability and significance than even Moses, the great, like, Jews see the, him as, like, their guy, their founder, basically, you know, short of Abraham, you know, it's Abraham, Moses, and Elijah. Those are, like, the big people. And yet, Jesus is a greater fulfillment of all three and then some. <clears throat> He's able to bring supernatural abundance to the point where there's some left over and that we can enjoy those leftovers, that is the abundance that God is promising you and I in the reading of this passage. That is the spiritual abundance that awaits us when we go to receive the Eucharist at Mass. This Sunday is a really good opportunity to kind of do a self-check about your posture, your attitude, your behavior at Mass. Do you prepare in any way to bring something to Mass, to offer prayers, intentions, money, your attention, the way you dress, the way you present yourself, to uh, set aside the time to be there in a state of prayer? Do you prepare the readings so that you know what it is that you're going to hear? Do you do some study about the other readings after you've done this gospel study? You know, do you know what it is that you are preparing for? And are you well prepared for that, to praise God and give him what he is his due, his worship? And our attitude at Mass, do we go to Mass thinking like, oh, this is something for my entertainment. This is something that I critique. I'm, I'm not participating. I'm just watching. No, we are all called to what the church says is full, conscious, active participation in the Mass. Full, active, conscious participation. That we're meant to be fully present, active and aware, conscious, aware of what's going on, consciously participating, not just a passive recipient because we're in that geographical place, but intentionally involved in the collective offering to God of what little we have so that He can transform it into something supernaturally abundant and fruitful in your life, and in the life of the community. That's why we gather. We represent and remember all that Jesus did for us, that the culmination of that Passover sacrifice and meal was his gift of himself as the sacrificial lamb on the cross so that we would be forgiven of our sins and we would not need to make the sacrifice to pay the debt that we owed. That is a beautiful gift. That is a beautiful thing to thank God for, to praise him for, because every day that we have, every breath in our lungs is a gift from him and a reminder of the fact that we did not earn any of this. We don't deserve any of it. We don't have any right to it. And yet God loves us so much that he would do that for us. And in the ways that this life is difficult, the ways that we struggle in living out our faith, he gives us the supernatural food that we need to sustain us, to encourage us, and to help us to be the best saints, the best disciples that we can possibly be in the Eucharist, the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ that you and I get to receive every single week, every single day if we so choose. That is a huge gift, the source and summit of our faith. Let it not be lost on us this week. And when we hear this gospel proclaimed, be reminded that God can do very little, very abundant things with the little that you have. And he's looking at you and he's saying, Give them some food yourselves. Give what you have. Offer what you have. And I promise it will explode in generosity and abundance. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Lord, you are so good. You are so good. You came to give us life and life with abundance. And in the ways that we feel like we focus too much on what we don't have, in the ways that we are dissatisfied, in the ways that we are trying to fulfill that hunger we have in all the wrong places, we ask, Lord, just for your, the gift of wisdom, the gift of awareness, the gift of understanding, and the fortitude to be able to turn away from things that are not good for us, habits of selfishness and ingratitude, and to turn back toward you in praise, to offer what little we have, what insignificant things that they may seem to be to you, so that you can transform them into something supernaturally abundant and fruitful. We pray, God, that you would do that in our life, you would do that in our families, you would do that in our church community, you would do that in our world, through each one of us, through our yes. And we pray, Lord, that every single week at Mass, we would see it not as an obligation, but as an opportunity, that we are being invited into a celebration of praise, a commemoration of what you did for us, and an invitation to participate into it. None of it is a spectator sport. And so we pray, God, that you would help us call to mind ways that we could be more intentional and present when we gather for worship, so that the gift of the Eucharist would never be lost on us and would always bear supernatural fruit in our lives. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.